I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the LRB podcast. If you subscribe to the LRB, you can get the first 12 issues for just £12. To find out more, go to lrb.me forward slash listen. That's lrb.me forward slash listen. Hello, I'm Joanna Biggs, one of the editors on the London Review of Books. And a month before lockdown, I spoke with Mary Wellesley about the idea of the island, blessed and not so blessed. I should say we had no idea at the time that we were soon to be stranded inside our own homes. She reviewed Islands in the West, Classical Myth and the Medieval Norse and Irish Geographical Imagination by Matthias Eagler in the issue dated the 5th of March 2020, but the conversation ranges from Robinson Crusoe to the Fire Festival. All the pieces we mention about anchoresses, menageries and Gawain and the Green Knight can be read online at lrb.co.uk. Mary, why this essay? Why islands? Well, I suppose that islands have this kind of magical appeal. When you look out over a seascape and you see an island, there's something so inviting about it. Um, I don't know if you remember that moment at the beginning of The Heart of Darkness where Conrad talks about the welded join between the sky and the sea. And islands feel like this place of rupture on that join, this kind of strange, uncomfortable place in this liminal zone. Um, John Keats wrote this really wonderful sonnet uh, called To Elsa Rock, which is about an island in southwest Scotland. He wrote it in 1818 on a walking tour. And he talks about the island uh, as a, a kind of union between the infinities of sky and sea. And I think that captures a lot of their magical status. There they sit somehow uncomfortably on that welded join. And but specifically the blessed island, these kind of imaginary perfect places that exist or don't exist. And I was sort of thinking about, I made a list reading your piece of all the different things that make a paradise island. Food, sex, a gentle climate, abundant plants and animals that come, well, animals that come back themselves for milking. So basically, no, less, fewer problems than you imagine. And that made me think, is that what we'd want now in a paradise island? Was that something you were thinking about as you were writing? Or was it much more looking to history? I suppose when I was writing the piece, I was interested in what different cultures configure as an ideal island. And so in the medieval imagination, it becomes a much more Christianized place and the the adventuring hero who we find in, for example, the Odyssey, uh, becomes the adventuring monk or indeed the peregrinus, this uh, person who gets into a boat and just trusts that God will guide them through the dangers of the sea. Um, and so th I suppose that's what I was interested in is how do different uh, ages configure it in the piece, I talk about how in some Greek texts, uh, you can only reach the islands of the blessed if uh, you are of important aristocratic lineage, or uh, you're a hero from the wars. And then 
that the kind of access requirements, as I call it, uh, for, for reaching islands changes over time. So it used to be kind of a class thing or a, a kind of meritocratic thing. That, that was the thing that changed. Well, yeah. So in Pindar's Second Olympian Ode, uh, the island of the blessed, and there it's, it's singular, not, not plural, is accessible only to those who've completed three cycles of life without abandoning the path of virtue. Um, so it's a very different... I mean, there is a kind of implication that you can only get, for example, in St. Brendan's, the voyage of St. Brendan, that it's only by dint of his... Uh, saintly monastic status that he's able to reach these places so i suppose um in many of these stories there's a there's a notion that you have to be pure or good in some way in order to reach them another thing your piece made me think of was the reality tv series love island which i guess you do have to be chosen to go on that it is supposed to be this perfect place where it's only love and well there's a lot of alcohol on it um and you're supposed to be able to find love and be undisturbed by the rest of life, you know, this perfect place. But as we've seen, it it has this darker side. There is people who have really suffered from being on it. Um, Yes, I can't speak with any great authority on Love Island, having never seen it. Uh, But I think the kind of interesting, I think the sort of interesting model here perhaps is to think about the Lord of the Flies and the way in which there is a kind of persistent idea about islands as being places where which are kind of mi- microcosms of society, places where you can you can remake society and you can you can build a new world, like for example Thomas More's Utopia. But they can also, because they're microcosms of society, be the breeding ground for the basest kinds of human instincts. Um, so, Lord of the Flies. And I kind of was thinking that maybe the Fire Festival, that amazing documentary on Netflix about the um, ill-fated festival on a supposedly Caribbean paradise island, how that was a kind of Lord of the Flies for the millennial generation. It also made me think of, when I was reading your piece, like Robben Island and and Alcatraz. And so the way islands have been used for the complete opposite to try and banish something that we don't like about our current society. Yeah, so I think that that's a very well recognised, uh, and it's not simply a trope, but it's also it's a reality. I mean, places like St. Helena in the middle of the Atlantic, it's a British overseas territory. Uh, some people will know that Napoleon was imprisoned and died there. But he wasn't the only prisoner who uh, went there. He Also, there were prisoners from the Boer Wars, um, prisoners from the Zulu Wars, and latterly Bahraini dissidents in the 1950s. So this kind of paradise island has been this, as you say, place of incarceration, uh, where the sea is not this romantic surrounding, but actually a kind of uh, a kind of fence or wall. That makes me think also of other pieces you've written for the London Review of Books, this amazing piece you wrote about anchoresses. And also, I think your first piece was about menageries and zoos. So we have this kind of... I, don't want to say obsession that seems a bit strong but some sort of kind of interest in places that are kind of enclosed and can be controlled and uh, can be ideal in a certain way I mean I suppose in in the simplest way what I find fascinating about medieval history in particular is the way in which the kind of strangeness of the medieval world as we perceive it is actually an invitation to us to think about the strangeness of our own world and if we think about incarceration or enclosure i mean we think about the proportion for example of the american population that is incarcerated and yet that's a kind of accepted fact of life um and i suppose thinking about enclosure is there are all kinds of 
different forms of enclosure in our modern world. There's a wonderful moment in one of the lives of St Cuthbert. St Cuthbert was um, a 7th century English saint from Northumbria and uh, he retreated from the monastery of Lindisfarne to Inner Farne Island where he had a hermitage. And what's very interesting is that there's this moment in the life where it says that one of the first things he did was to build a high wall so that his eyes would be focused constantly on the celestial realm and he wouldn't be distracted by the kind of presumably the elemental landscape around him. And I've always thought that's quite interesting because to me part of the appeal of some kind of spiritual retreat on an island is about the beauty of the landscape. But of course that's a very romantic notion of, of the power of landscape and actually building the high walls is a kind of an integral part of the spiritual exercise that figures like Cuthbert were undergoing. And it's the same as shutting off the Wi-Fi, I suppose. Another thing, when I was going through making lists of things that are make up a blessed island, I sort of noticed that, I mean, it's not, not surprising just because of the way history has been, but it's often men looking for a blessed island and women are found there. And it made me think, oh, what what sort of blessed island would there be if women were looking for it? Like, what would women want to be what do women want? And Freud would say, but what is the what would be that perfect island? Would it be different? I suppose what's interesting is that you take, for example, Circe in in the Odyssey, and she has her own island, and it's she has dominion there. But it seems to be a very kind of male idea of what female dominion is about, because she turns the sailors into pigs, and ultimately she's practicing some kind of dubious witchcraft. Um, yeah, what would a what would a, a female paradise island look like? I don't know. Perhaps the Wonder Woman film. <laughs> <laughs> it made me wonder if men would be on it at all. I mean, one hopes so, right? If they men want women to be on it, then you'd want them to. But um, sometimes things seem so complicated, and you think maybe women would say a retreat would be from the world would be would be a retreat from men. I don't know. There's a wonderful 13th century poem called "The Land of Cocaine." which is probably produced in Ireland and it survives solely in a manuscript in the British Library. And um, it's definitely a kind of satire of a lot of these uh, medieval stories about the kind of transmarine paradise, for specifically St. Brendan's, um, the voyage of St. Brendan. It seems to be a parody of that. But there, um, it's really wonderful because the, the, the houses are made of pies and the roof tiles are made of little cakes and uh, there are monks and nuns there and they have orgies all the time in a... I think they may have even um, splash around in a river of milk. So it's a wonderful kind of inversion of those those paradise narratives. The other thing that comes through in your piece so beautifully, the way you draw it out very gently towards the end, this idea of how much the island, the idea of the island plays into imperial thinking and colonial thinking, how islands kind of corrupt our kind of political thinking by offering this kind of perfect idea that obviously could never exist. Yeah, I mean, I suppose if you think about the, a lot of those 18th century narratives about islands, like, for example, Robinson Crusoe, um, it strikes me that those stories are about the man's dominion over this little place uh, which can be completely controlled and that even the people on it can be completely controlled. Uh, you think about uh, Crusoe's mastery over Friday, who he enslaves. Um, and it seems to me that this is a kind of metaphor for a lot of um, 18th century thinking about um, 
man's relationship with and I and I gender it specifically yes man's relationship with other people and with the natural world and I think that's the kind of darker and more frightening implication of these island mythologies is the way they they offer this promise of some kind of little world that can be completely controlled and contained well, yes, all the plants grow infinitely. They're abundant and fertile and there's no problems with harvests. And so nature is completely... Yeah, so I think definitely in the earlier text, there's a notion that, that nature doesn't need to be subject to dominion. Um, but definitely in kind of later ideas about islands, there's an idea that, you know, Robinson Crusoe is so much of it is about the kind of drama of this man trying to overcome his circumstance and try to overcome the the challenges of the natural world as as he experiences it. It seems so foolish when you think about it that way because you start with the Garden of Eden at the beginning of the Bible and of course that isn't perfect either and we get cast out. So this idea that that a paradise island could ever be a paradise island, you know? Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm interested in this idea. I wrote about this a while ago in the paper in the piece about Gawain and the Green Knight. Um, there I was talking about how uh, the poem Pearl, which is this extraordinary Middle English dream vision, but it describes this uh, beautiful garden where the, the dreamer, the narrator of the poem, kind of wakes in this incredible place with um, a stream that has jeweled rocks uh, at its bottom. And I was kind of interested in the fact that the description of that landscape is about a place that is kind of suggestively manicured. It's not a wild landscape. And one of the things that I was interested in in that particular piece was talking about Gawain and the Green Knight, which seems to have been written by the same author as wrote Pearl. There, the landscape, the wild landscape, as we would understand it through the kind of prism of the romantic imagination, big R romantic, um, we think about the wild landscape as a, as a kind of poetic place, a magical place, a place of possibility. But for Gawain, a wild landscape is a place of threat. And it's interesting that before the Romantic period, if I can make a massive generalization, but before the Romantic period, so much of our conception of the perfect ideal landscape is one that is suggestively tended by man. It's a, it's a garden, as you say, like uh, paradise. And the word paradise itself means garden. It means a tended place. There was another interesting hermit you were telling me about. Oh, yes. Uh, Fernando Lopez. So I probably am pronouncing that wrong because he was Portuguese. He was marooned, if that's the right word, probably not. But uh, he lived on St. Helena for a very long time. He was initially part of an expeditionary force um, of Portuguese colonialists that went to Goa in the um, early 16th century. And he was left in charge of Goa when Albuquerque, who was his um, superior, went off to go and fight some kind of war, I think. And he, when he returned, he discovered that uh, Lopez had converted to Islam and, and kind of led a mutiny against the Portuguese settlers. And Lopez was then imprisoned and uh, brutally tortured and he had his left thumb and his nose and his ears and his right arm all cut off. And he languished in prison there until uh, 1515. And then at some point, the a ship uh, returned, was returning to Portugal, and it stopped off at St. Helena on the way. 
I should also add that the, the accounts describing his life are conflicting and not necessarily completely reliable. So we're kind of pulling together fragments like little islands in an archipelago here. Um, and he then, it's not clear whether he then escaped from the ship and went to go and live on St. Helena or whether he asked to be allowed to settle on St. Helena. But at this point, there was no population on St. Helena. And he lived there. And it strikes me as this very moving story of that is something like a medieval anchorite. Here he is retreating from this place, retreating from society, retreating from the brutality of man. He's hideously disfigured, psychologically scarred. He's been through a religious conversion. And he lives there for some time um, until eventually he decides to get on a boat and travel back to Portugal. And he then is granted an audience with Pope Clement VII, uh, who pardons him of the sin of apostasy because he had converted to Islam while he was in Goa. And he spends some time in in Lisbon, but then he eventually decides that he wants to return to St. Helena. And so he's taken back by a ship and he lives there for around another 20 years and dies in about 1545. And I find this such a wonderful sort of meeting point of all of many of the themes that we've been talking about in terms of islands the island as a as a retreat as a paradise a place of threat that's a lovely place to end thank you so much mary wellesley thank you before you go let me tell you about the lrb's new daily newsletter called diverted traffic which features a different piece from the paper's archive each day a complete absence of references to plague pandemics or quarantine is guaranteed and the piece will be brought in front of the paywall for 24 hours so you can share it with anyone you want to to sign up go to lrb.me forward slash traffic that's lrb.me forward slash traffic and if you subscribed the lrb you can get the first 12 issues for just 12 pounds to find out more go to lrb.me forward slash listen that's lrb.me forward slash listen.